Guru Nation, welcome to episode 430 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this interview, I interview the founder and director of the MRTC, Dr. Barbara Beard, and she is going to talk to me about diversity in clinical trials, how to include more people, what her MRTC foundation is actually doing when it comes to affecting policy in clinical research. So it's a video, it's an interview that uh, I probably need to do more of, getting people from uh, various aspects of clinical research talking about policy and you know really important things that the industry needs to focus on so definitely check that out i think there's value here for everybody check out the links in the show notes patreon.com slash five bucks a month has weekly videos on how to improve your opportunities on social media as well as a monthly mastermind with other people from life sciences where we all hold each other accountable for how we're achieving our objectives uh cra crc academies links in the show notes the book the comprehensive guide to clinical research link in the show notes if you want more studies for your site or even want to start a site text me 949-415-6256 With all that being said, enjoy the episode of Dr. Barbara Beard. Hello, Guru Nation. Welcome back to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I've got from Multi-Regional Clinical Trial Center of Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard, Okay, so it's MRCT for short, MRCT Center. I got Dr. Beerer on, and I'm wearing the Harvard hat for you guys, doctor. Uh, I've been, I would never would be able to ever have under any circumstances gotten into Harvard other than the bookstore. And so I got the hat because I liked the way it looked and I liked the campus. I actually shot a video there uh, on the campus a couple years back. So good times, but I'm glad to have you on because we're talking about diversity in clinical research. This is something that, you know, the industry has always tried to focus on improving diversity, uh, especially when it comes to female participation, minority participation. It's become something of increasing importance. And the FDA is actually rejecting studies if there's not enough of a diversity in the, in the, in the trial data. So we're going to talk to you about that. We're actually going to talk to you about first how, how you got into research and a little bit about your background. And then we're going to get into some of the stuff you're doing with MRCT uh, Center. So, uh, and also COVID. Let's talk about the COVID-19 clinical research flyers. Uh, There's a lot we can talk about, Dr. Beer. So thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So let's get, let's talk about you first. So we get some context, like who are you and how did you get started? How did you even end up in clinical research? Yeah, great question. So I am a hematologist oncologist uh, by training and, um, I have to say that in oncology and in serious forms of uh, conditions in hematology, the only way to make progress is to test new medicines and to, to advance, you know, the current understanding towards treatment and cures. Uh, so part of the core activity 
of hematologists and oncologists is to participate in clinical trials. Um, so I trained at Harvard, I trained at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham and Women's Hospital, and have always been involved in clinical trials. Then it became clear that a lot of work needed to be done in order to do those well, <clears throat> in order to have oversight and um, appropriate uh, sort of uh, ethics and, and conduct in the regulatory environment, and over the years, I've always been committed to that uh, aspect. And increasingly now, I set up the MRCT Center with a lawyer a friend of mine, Mark Barnes, uh, who's a partner at Ropes and Gray about 10 years ago, to look specifically at um, the ethics conduct uh, and regulatory environment in clinical trials in multinational or multi and multi-site transnational clinical research. Wow. Most of the trials that are done, um, academic trials are often done within the U.S. or locally, but global, but pharma companies generally do global trials. They want their drugs, you know, reviewed and approved broadly, not just in one mm -hmm. setting or in one country. So um, our ability to, to execute those trials well depends on understanding the local conditions, the regulations, and, and you know, sort of figuring out how to do that well uh, in all settings, in all cultures. How are, how are you guys different? Because it sounds a lot like an IRB. Are you guys an IRB, or how, how are you different? We're, so an IRB is a uh, review board that looks at specific clinical trial protocols, balance, minimizes the risk, balances risk and benefit, then looks at you know, the informed consent for a specific protocol. We don't do that. Okay. Uh, we look at the how trials are conducted, including the pre-trial data, the study design, the materials that are shared with patients, the education of patients, the review and approval, safety formulations, and try and figure out how to do that in a more patient-centric and respectful, okay. uh, harmonized way. I got so it. We don't work on specific trials. We don't do specific trials. I've done hundreds of trials in my past, but not not now. So, so you know, one of the ways that, uh, as an example, um, we were quite in, um, dedicated to improving data sharing uh, because, frankly, if a trial is done and the data isn't shared, you can't evaluate that data, and the next company may turn around and do almost the same study, even though it's we know the answer. Um, so we started working on that, and then that grew to um, the an in interesting moment in my life when I was giving a talk on this data sharing and a patient at the back of the room got up when we used to do these in person <laughs> at a conference, got up and said, you know, you spent six hours talking about sharing with each other. No one ever tells us the results of clinical trials. This is true. And, and that started a whole work stream on, um, you know, sort of sharing uh, research results with the participants, both summary, what did we learn from the study that yeah. you volunteered for? And then if you say, look, you know, we found out that drug A is better than drug B, the natural question is, what drug was I on? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have to think about individual results and how to return them and all the different aspects of that. Um, so is so. it, I guess, is it fair to say I'm on the website now, achieving diversity, inclusion, and equity in clinical research. Is it fair to say that the MRCT center, the primary stakeholder are the patients or are you, are your clients pharma and biotech sponsors? Um, I would say we uh, are neutral in the audience. Uh, we certainly have on every work group a diversity of membership, both pharma, biotech, CROs, clinical research organizations, patient, patient advocates, mm-hmm. um, regulators, um, and academia, and then whoever else is involved in data sharing. It was journal editors, publishers. So not in this case, but, um, you know, there's whoever has a role, because we think that if you get the, the stakeholders around the table, figure out the problem, and then discuss together possible approaches to solve it, um, it in all likelihood, you'll be that much more successful in achieving approaches and solutions that work for all. You know, um, yeah, I mean, I'm surprised yeah. this, you know, I, I think it's a very important thing that's being done by you guys. I'm just, I'd be curious to figure out like why this hasn't been done before you guys or if it has. And, you know, how do you keep something like this funded? Like who's the, you know, how, how do you keep the, uh, how do you keep the lights on doing this? Yes, we, we don't get any um, financial support from Harvard or from the Brigham, but we do uh, have voluntary contributions from pharma companies um, and from nonprofits like the Gates Foundation who understand the nature of the work. And then about half our funding comes from grants we write. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So, you know, we're constantly, you know, sort of looking for ways to support the work. It's not it's not a typical NIH type grant because uh, it's not asking a research question. It's, right. Uh, so they're usually foundations that support us. And so when you write these grants and you guys do your studies, are you actually enrolling patients in your studies or are these are just like pure like thought studies? They're policy. Okay. They're policy. Okay. That's interesting. And then, and then meta research, like, you know, uh, looking at a hundred informed consents and saying, what do they say about whether they will return results? I see. Or how do you explain to patients whether or not what they're going to do with their, quote, data. Wow. Because patients won't necessarily know how to ask that. You know, they won't necessarily think to ask that question. So if it's not offered, right? Yeah. You know, and we, we're, we're big believers that the ultimate reason we all do this work is to improve uh, public health and the care and treatment of individuals that's interesting so i'm glad we have you on because you know there's a lot of question there's a lot of places we can go with this interview i guess the biggest thing is like from your years of doing this what what has been the biggest pain points that you've seen uh in the industry is it lack of diversity is it uh lack of the results like you were saying to the patients or so lack of transparency, I guess, uh, which I think the industry tried to improve that with the Transcelerate, right? Yes, they are. They are. Everybody 
is working on these issues now. I don't think they were so um, sort of top of mind uh, 10 years ago when we started this. Um, But I think that, you know, um, bringing these kinds of questions to light and focusing on them and publishing on them and making the that our findings and our suggestions um, or recommendations uh, visible, it, it, it all starts to help. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you ask me to rank order, what's the most important thing? I, I would probably say um, at this moment, uh, inclusion of appropriate populations in research, sort of nature of uh, why we need research, why what the risks and benefits are, and um, trying to help data that is there. So um, are there other issues? There are many issues. You know, the lack of harmonization worldwide, so that each time you do a study in a different country, you've got slightly different rules and regulations, makes these trials much more expensive, much more cumbersome. You know, we went through one experience in a pediatric trial. It's very hard to enroll kids. One experience where in the U.S., um, the endpoint was at 16 weeks, I think, and in the EU, it was 24 weeks. Yeah. So you have to make it a much larger study to have an interim analysis at 16 weeks. Or why couldn't they just decide on 20 together? You know, like, so trying to make the world smaller and better and more cooperative and collaborative and less competitive has been a, a major effort. Yeah, and Dr. Beer, I, uh, another issue that I see since I've started in research, I've been doing this since 2005, is wow. clinical research has a branding problem. I always say this, like, if you go ask the average Joe, the average Jane out on the street, hey, you know, I've got a good clinical trial opportunity for you. They're going to look at me like I'm crazy. Like, what are you going to experiment on me? I'm not a lab rat, you know. This is like the consensus amongst the general public. Maybe COVID's changed that a little bit because now it's front and center mainstream. But I think there is a branding issue. And even before we get to how do we get more minorities to participate, I think we have to fix the branding issue first. Yeah. And, you know, it comes out of a history of having done experiments improperly and without the right oversight. And, you know, there are risks. But, you know, every time we prescribe a medicine for which there is little or no data, we're taking an experiment, we're doing a micro experiment without learning anything. Mm -hmm. So, So if we... Um, only look in clinical trials of patients between the ages of 18 and 65, and then it's approved to market. Everybody older and younger can get it, at least in the states where we can prescribe. If we only if we exclude everybody with kidney problems or liver problems, and you know uh, any other kinds of intercurrent illnesses or conditions and only study people with that condition alone, then you release it. Every time you've got somebody with kidney disease, liver disease, other problems, and this drug, you don't quite know what's going to happen. So we have to figure out over the time course of product development and then later 
after the product's approved, but not waiting for yeah. safety events to use that data and say, okay, now that we've seen a couple of million patients prescribed, how do we develop the data to make sure it's safe and effective for everyone? Mm. And it doesn't have to be, in my opinion, exactly the same efficacy. It doesn't, you know, everybody's going to have a slightly different res response. It's a bell curve. But you want to make sure it's in the same direction, that it's not worse than other drugs for some. So do you think the industry needs more phase four studies, more of the post-marketing studies? I, I think that what we'd love to see is to develop uh, uh, observational data using real-world data um, in a way that can then inform these kinds of questions mm -hmm. with it. You know, and only under certain conditions would you require a, a true phase four, but you would want to see more frequent um, sort of cuts of the data, not just safety, which they are always very good about looking at, but, you know, cuts of the data in terms of age range, comorbidities or, you know, intercurrent problems and, um, and also race and diversity. Yeah. Speaking of race and diversity, so I'm glad you brought that up again because it's super important that we talk about this, especially now in the times that we're in. These things are all front and center of our attention as they as they should be. Uh, my theory has always been if you want more minorities participating in your studies, and you meaning pharma, big pharma, small pharma, biotech, whatever, if you want more minorities, you need to go out in those communities and get the clinicians in those communities to do clinical research. Because the majority of PIs are at academia. They're not in the communities where they're treating the minorities. And so one of the things my company is helping do is, hey, we're out there, like we're helping anyone who has a private practice. You want to do research? It's actually not that difficult. There's a few things you got to keep in mind. GCP, you got to have a coordinator. You got to know how to run a protocol. But at the end of the day, being a PI really is no, not much different than being a regular physician. You know, you're just collecting research data, but you are looking at safety, right? Labs, you're looking at the ECGs, all those things that doctors would do anyways. So I, I've always wondered why pharma doesn't want to, and I think I have a, an answer. I mean, it's a lot of work to get a research-naive physician up and running. Uh, maybe they're leaving that to people like us to do. But I've always wondered why they haven't invested in those communities where their, their clinicians are there. You know, but they most of them don't do research. Are you like? Do you agree with this, or am I on onto uh, something else? No, no, no. I I think that's certainly part of the issue, and that in many many trials engaging, you know, currently care providers to be investigators um, would be very very helpful, and that we can train them. Um, and we can help them and we can create infrastructure behind them so that, you know, there's a some yeah. better fail safe. But that's possible and, and specifically to engage not only the care providers in the communities, but underrepresented care providers specifically that care for that populations or those populations. Um, I also think that we have to be more thoughtful about um, certain kinds of medications or product development that are probably not safe to do as an outpatient in, in the community that need to be in a hospital, 
but then we need to really do the outreach to bring those patients in, involve the care provider so that they're not lost to follow up. Mm. Right now, about half the time when somebody gets referred in, the person who refers them never hears back. And in fact, often loses the patient because they come to them, you know, big medical center and it's all bells and whistles and yeah. they start. And that is also a problem. Um, I also think there are many, many things we could be doing even at academic medical centers that are um, patient uh, centric um, that up till now we haven't done for whatever reason, yeah. um, you know, for convenience or, you know, including things like you can't have every clinic hour be between nine and five because essential workers can't make it. Um, and, you know, you should pay for transportation and pay for the costs. There's no reason that somebody who volunteers to be in a clinical trial should be worse off for volunteering for the public good of society. Yeah. Right? I mean, it. It's not, some of these things are just not rocket science, but people worry that if I pay people to come or pay for their lost wages, that somehow I'm going to induce them to do something that they wouldn't do otherwise. Right. Well, we don't have evidence for that. We have evidence if you give them a huge amount of money. In fact, the only data says they'll probably be more suspicious about why are you asking me to do this? (laughs) And not, you know, well, I have to feed my family. I'm going to do this now. Right. So, um, so there are some things at the edges, but basically, I think, you know, involving, um, uh, you know, sort of taking a position of inclusion rather than exclusion. We 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 need a reason to say somebody's not a good candidate for a trial, rather than. The reverse, which is we're going to study this very narrow population and, you know, use our judgment to see who will do well. So a lot of it's interesting, a lot of underrepresented minorities just to focus on that are never asked to be in trials. And when they're asked, they're as likely to say yes as as white, you know, participants. Yeah, no, that is true. I mean, we work here in Los Angeles. We have a a huge Hispanic community. And, you know, naturally, a lot of our clinics, we I own some clinics that do central nervous system disorder studies, so depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, Alzheimer's, things like that. So the majority of our patients are Mexican-Americans. And we would love to put them in studies. Unfortunately, the majority of the studies won't allow them to join yeah. if they don't speak English right. uh, because the scales are, you know, they have to be a, there has to be a certified translator and they just don't want to go through all that. So they're saying, you know, we would love for you to enroll uh, Mexican Americans in the study, but if they don't speak English, they're excluded. Well, that excludes so a whole I, lot of them. I reject that. I say, okay, the first time you face this problem, validate, your instrument validate the scale yeah like the pans the cgi i'm always wondering dr beer though why don't we do that so my theory is that 
that uh, they're paying licensing fees to like the PANS. Let's take the PANS, for example, positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia. It's like the gold standard for schizophrenia. Um, uh, so that's in English. There, somebody's getting paid every time that's being used in a study. I don't think they have a Spanish version. And so I and I don't think the sponsors are allowed to translate it. So I think that's the issues there. But I don't know. I don't know for sure. So it's copyrighted so that they can't do it. Right. And the, it's the sort of, quote, gold standard. So in my universe of what we want to do, we want to say either you translate it or we develop some other way of including Mexican-American or Spanish-speaking mm-hmm. uh, individuals, which are, after all, a major population that we care for. And it's yeah. not as if we don't do some studies in Spain or in Mexico or in Latin America. So what do they use there? <laughs> hey, that's a good question. I got to go find out. Why aren't we looking to, you know, our, our you know, world collaborators for yeah. best practices? Why do we assume that what we do here is, is um, you know, the only way of doing things? Interesting. Okay, Part of that is the IRB who says it's okay to do the study and exclude, you know, anybody who doesn't speak English. I see. So these kind of thing, like this pragmatic issue I just brought up, like this practical thing we deal with on a daily basis is what your organization actually deals with on a day-to-day basis at scale, right? Yeah. And we say, here are other ways to deal with it. Here are other ways that, you know, they're not available today. But a year from now, if we commit, we should be in a different place. Next time I get into an argument with my sponsor about uh, somebody who's Spanish-speaking wanting to join a study, I'm going to send them over to you, doctor. And I will be happy <laughs> to have this conversation. It's one person at a, at a time to convince them. That's good. It's very frustrating as a site owner and as a site, like a coordinator, because the doctor, the clinicians, I mean... You know, the clinicians speak English and Spanish, so they can translate what the patient's saying on the form. But I guess uh, every sponsor has their own uh, SOPs when it comes to these kind of things. But it's, it's frustrating because look at all the patients, look at all the data that you're basically saying, no, you know, we don't want to include them. We do want to include them, but we don't want to include them. So, and then if a regulatory agency said, okay, we're going to approve this schizophrenic you know, this medication for schizophrenia for English speaking people. <laughs> you think that would change the tune? <laughs> I think we'll figure out how to deal with it in a, in a, you know, New York minute. So your doctor can't prescribe it unless you speak English. <laughs> <laughs> that would make uh, top uh, headlines on uh, all the news channels. Well, I mean, you know, we haven't validated that it's, <laughs> The same for you know Spanish-speaking people. Why That's should true. we do that? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not I'm not advocating for that, but I mean it's a whole system of thinking. Yeah. That we have to say this is no longer the way we want to you know do business. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about COVID-19. So your organization's doing a lot with that. I I always try to look at the positives. I mean it's it's really hard to pull positives out of COVID, but you can, I mean, remote work, you know, but one of the things like for our industry, I think is the perception of clinical research has changed a little bit. 
now everybody's on the same page. Hey, we need more volunteers in study. We need to get this vaccine out. I hate staying home. I want to go to the movie theater. Uh, so we need more volunteers. So I think that's one of the positives. W- what have you been seeing, though? And, and, and what is your organization doing when, it's, when it comes to COVID-19? Yeah, thanks for asking. So the other major positive, I think, is that we've really adopted decentralized clinical trials that, uh, uh, you know, that a lot of work can be done remotely. If you want, you know, to make sure somebody is feeling okay, they don't have to spend two hours driving to the center, wait, finding a parking space, waiting for 40 minutes to see you, for you to ask, how are you feeling? Fine. Great. Great to see you. See you next month. I mean, you can do that just as we're doing it here on a video and, you know, even send them a home thermometer and a blood pressure cuff if you need it. You know, so that that patient centricity, I think, is good. We're better at electronic consents and all sorts of remote monitoring and performance, which I think is terrific. Mm-hmm. And I hope we don't go back. Um, yeah. I really we don't go back um, for so many reasons. What we're doing is one, um, we've focused a lot on how to, how to include diverse um, uh, minority populations and others in these trials, because I think we've seen, it's true in other diseases as well, but in COVID-19, it's clear that the incidence and severity is um, much worse for minority populations. <clears throat> and certain vulnerable populations incarcerated and, um, and, and uh, you know, sort of yeah. institutionalized nursing homes. Yeah, there's, a, there, there's so an inequality there are, uh, of the uh, COVID outcomes amongst the socio- socioeconomic uh, stratus. And, and we don't know why. Mm-hmm. We don't know whether because there, there are more underlying health conditions, diabetes, hypertension, whether it's because they have to get on a bus to go to work and they're essential workers. And, you know, the, all of us are sitting at home and working or getting in our private car yeah. to go where we need to go. We don't know whether it's exposure, whether they live in multi-generational homes at a different rate. So. All of these aspects of what informs the condition, we don't even have insight into because we're not collecting the data. Mm-hmm. So we're starting, you know, to, to do a very, you know, as good a job as we can to push for those kinds of, of um, uh, interventions and to make it common that we're all doing it the same way. So when you don't have tiny trials that don't, you know, that are inadequate, or underpowered, but you can combine the results of trials or do multi-site trials to get the kind of data we need. We're doing some work on um, on trying to get people to collaborate with each other. We stood up a platform called COVID, COVID uh, Collaboration Platform, um, which covidcp.org, to get people to uh, um, not run their own tiny little trials that are underpowered and um, won't give us the answers, but to collaborate with one another. And then we did a whole suite of um, flyers for the general public about what questions should you ask, how should you approach a clinical trial. So what happened, we were an early hotspot in Boston 
um, really a huge influx of patients. In every hospital, we, you know, abandoned all electric, elective surgery and all the ICU beds became COVID-19 beds. And people would be in isolation and be asked to be in a clinical trial because they didn't have, we didn't know what to treat or how to treat these patients. And, you know, patients sitting in their room would be approached for a clinical trial and not know whether there were alternatives to treatment, whether they had to, what questions should they ask, et cetera. So we took a step back and say, if you're sick, if you're thinking about a vaccine, if you're a child, if you have a child, you know, independent of what the research question is, how do you think about, sorry, how do you think about being in a trial? What questions should you ask? What should you understand before you say yes? And those flyers we made available, and thankfully a lot of other institutions are picking them up and using them. We co-brand now with whoever wants to, you know, put their moniker on and mm. whatever. Um, and um, and then we're we've now got them translated into Spanish today. Um, so we'll be releasing those, and we've invited anybody to work with us for other languages. You know, we've done this a little bit beforehand. We we took a uh, uh, we developed a whole platform of um, brochures to explain things like what's an MRI, you know, um, and then those are all in plain language and uh, translated into 22 languages. Yeah. So, so docs don't have to spend time saying this is the research procedure. We're going to give you a questionnaire and then we're going to send you into an MRI. And somebody says, what's an MRI? They're never going to spend time explaining it. Yeah, I think we need more of that in the industry. I remember, I don't know if they're still around, but there used to be this group called CISCRP or something. Uh, Cisco. Cisco. Are, they, are they still around? They're still around. They're terrific. Okay. Yeah, yeah they, they used were, to do a lot of this kind of stuff. Yeah, they do. They do, and we work with them a lot. They're just absolutely terrific. Okay, so what yeah. do you think? What do you think about decentralized trials? Like, uh, do you ever see a time or a day where sponsor will do a trial directly on the patients without sites being involved? Um, I think, first of all, yes, and there's even been a trial that was attempted to do that way, and I don't think I. I don't think um, it's likely that big pharma, I don't know about biotech, um, but big pharma would ever do it, do a trial directly with the patients without an intermediary, um, whether that's a CRO with docs or a doc that coordinates that. Mm -hmm. Because for lots of reasons, including privacy and confidentiality and for having some distance between the sponsor and the patient. I think it's it's good to think about, you know, partitioning that somewhat, but I think we we could do it a lot more, many trials much more efficiently than we yeah. do now. Yeah, I wonder if they're sort of gearing up for that with, so there's been ever since patient centricity, which by the way, I always thought the industry should be patient-centric, but it seems like only in the last few years you started hearing this word at every conference. So what I've been seeing is pharma, biotech, well, not really biotech, usually big pharma, 
having these patient influencers, uh, I guess key opinion leader, but patients, and having them, you know, represent them in a way uh, at conferences. So creating protocols uh, yeah. with with patients in mind and things like that. Do you think this is something that's real, or is it just like a good publicity for pharma to do this? Such a great question. So actually, that's one of the grants we're writing right now. Ah, very. I'm interested in this. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are a couple of different levels to that. First of all, I think it's always better to have patient-patient advocates as part of the process from the beginning. Um, but what you're saying, I think, is that there are some almost professionalized patients as yes. they evolve. And are they really representing the patient interest? Um, I, I think that is better than nothing. Huh. I think what we have to be very careful about is thinking about what is representativeness. And if you have, you know, uh, four or five people, do they really represent the population that you want to involve? That's right. And Especially when they're four or five yeah. well-paid people. Well, yes, um, but I'm a believer that if you do work, you should be compensated for that work. True, true. Um, but I don't, I don't, I, I see the point. <laughs> um, and you know, I also think that there's, it's, it's very different talking to some, uh, as it were, you know, uh, professionalized, as you said, uh, patients that versus going to the barber shop. Right. But, but it's hard to get that information, which is why I really believe that um, many of us should be working with trusted intermediaries in the community. To your point, the, the community health centers that have, you know, community uh, advisory boards that are 51% or more community. We're used to thinking about what is the impact for the community, not for the doctor and not for the sponsor. And, you know, so so we should be much more deliberate about those kinds of activities. Yeah. Um, and all of that will, will only be good. Right. I also think, you know, there's an, an interesting question that I think we haven't really addressed, which is... Um, we let the IRB make a lot of decisions about what's okay for patients. Mm -hmm. well, well, sometimes the patients say that's okay, even if um, the IRB says, no, it's risky. Who are, wh why is, why right. is the IRB in a privileged, <laughs> privileged over the patient community? We can spend two hours talking about IRBs, Dr. Beer, because you know, there's been so much consolidation in the IRB space. We're actually thinking of starting a startup IRB ourselves because we keep getting asked from sponsors, "Hey, I don't want to work with these big ones. Do you do you know any good ones that are reasonable?" Not well, I know one that's starting. Yeah, okay. It's an independent, not-for-profit IRB. You see, because there's a I have an issue with like these big IRBs that consolidate, and they're basically just getting paid. I mean, their stakeholder is pharma, not not really the patient anymore. Right, right. 
But I, I think in general, they do a very good job, but they do, there's efficiency and you're right that the stakeholders are different. Yeah. But um, I'll, I'll send you the name of somebody who you should get on. Okay. Yeah. I get asked like at least once a week, at least once a week, hey, do you know a good IRB, uh, like not a big one, but a small one that can move quickly and is, and is reasonable? And I say, no, I don't. I'm going to start my own maybe. I do. I do. Okay, good. Set. Please send me that because we're probably going to use them. Uh, this has been interesting conversation. I'm very interested in that study you're doing on the patient, uh, influencer, or I guess the advocates. Um, I think that's something that if pharma does it the right way, if industry does it the right way, could be huge for them because these, these patients have a megaphone, especially with social media growing, uh, they can fill up a study like this if they were told to do it. The only issue I have that I could see is there's going to be a conflict of interest there. I don't think conflict of interest can ever be removed. It's just going to be shifted somewhere else. Yeah, but, you know, I think if people understand, um, you know, those motivators, it's not like they're... they're True. You know, I think people have to get to it. Um, yeah. Because... Everybody's conflicted uh, yeah. in one way or another, and the fact that you're not getting paid, for instance, if you're not getting paid, is a different conflict. You may be um, biased against it for some reason because you're, um, you know, sort of feeling used. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that that's true, but I think that what we can explore different different avenues for thinking about that. So the FDA gets a pot of money. Instead of the sponsor hmm. you know, sort of saying, let's bring six patients in that we know what they're going to say and we're going to pay their travel and pay them for their yeah. time, give an equivalent money amount of money to an organization that will choose representative patients and say, right. this is what we're going to do. I mean, there are lots of ways to think about this, but I think hearing from those individuals with the lived experience is incredibly important. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think the concern, you know, I I like to believe that the average person has good common sense and their B their BS detectors work most of the time. Sometimes the hyper vigilant BS detectors, uh, but they work. And so, yeah, I mean, hope hopefully that's that's. Uh, because like what you can copy from other industries, I know healthcare clinical research is different, but other industries, you know, they have influencers, and it it's disclosed that they get paid, and then people still make their decisions on whether they want to do something or not, have a call to action. So I guess it could be similar in our industry. It'll just be interesting to follow, and uh, we need more organizations like you guys to do studies on these things, so we can know for sure, not just speculate on right. what we think and how, and how to mitigate the risk, so that it's always disclosed. And for instance, there's a fair market value so that people, you know, are the same. So it's not as if if you get, you know, a payment from X, you're getting seven times more than if you were paid by Y. You know, I mean, there are ways of dealing with it so that it becomes part of the work um, yeah. and and disclosed, and then you can interpret the information through the lens of understanding what the payment structure is. We're going to put links in the show notes to the uh, website of, uh, of Dr. Beer's 
group, uh, MRCT Center. So I'll have the links. Actually, I've been on their website during this interview, so it's really good. They have a lot of different articles on there, uh, almost like a white paper on diversity that I saw. So there's a lot of cool stuff. Uh, I do want to do follow-up when you get the uh, some of these studies going that you okay. guys are doing. Okay. And, uh, and it'd, be, it'd be interesting to follow you guys, too. And I'm happy to... You know, talk to anybody. You can go on the website, find my name and email, and happy to, you know, anytime you want me to um, argue on behalf <laughs> of the diversity. Uh, yes. Um, well, us sites yeah. need you. Us small sites, community-based sites, we need help because we're, we, we're just usually told what to do. And if you don't want to do it our way, you don't have to we'll do the do study is what they tell us. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go. We we have other <laughs> options than you. I've, we've heard this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. When I was uh, run, ran research at the Brigham and I started to want certain things in our contracts from, you know, the sponsors, they always said, from Pharma, they always said, you're the only one who asked for this. I know. I get that all the time. Why did I didn't have friends? Yeah. <laughs> they want to isolate you. Like, you're weird for asking this, even though most people are. Yeah, but we'll good. just keep our true north. Yeah, we got to keep pushing, Thank fighting the good fight. Thank you, Dr. Beer. Are you on LinkedIn? Uh, yes, I am. Okay, I'll find you on LinkedIn. Our Put review. the links under there as well, and we'll have links underneath the show notes. Thank you so much. We're going to do it again. Thank I know you, you got to go. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening, and uh, we'll catch you all later. So, hey, everybody, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you leave a review if you could be so kind, please. Uh, And also go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com if you're interested in learning more about who I am, who some of my guests are. Uh, You can have access to some of my YouTube videos. Uh, I do a lot of videos about clinical research. So go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com and you can also call or text me anytime, 949-415-6256. Also follow me on any social media platform. It's Dan Svera. And you can also email me if you'd like, dan at theclinicaltrialsguru.com. Thank you very much.